Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 189. Today, I'm talking to TJ Clune all about how to create unforgettable characters. But first, to last week's question, which was, what is the biggest lesson you've learned since starting your writing? And holy moly, we had a lot of comments. I think this might have been the most comments that I have potentially ever received. So um, thank you to everybody who commented. I have read them all. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, a couple for the episode. So Val Neal says, you learn so much after hitting publish. If you're sitting on a book or nitpicking until it's perfect, stop procrastinating and get it out there. Best ongoing lesson is to trust my own voice. In the beginning, I was ahead of my critique partners when it came to voice and style and undid some of the stuff based on their advice that I wish I'd kept. That is such a tough lesson to learn. I think that a lot of us experience that kind of lesson in different ways about kind of suppressing bits of ourselves or losing parts of our voice. And so I'm really glad that you have um, found it again. Uh, Okay, Carly writes things, says, just keep moving. Sometimes it's a sprint, sometimes it's a crawl over a Lego covered floor, (laughs) but you've got to keep going. Tom Fowler says that it's okay to say no. I still struggle with wanting to do all of the things, but I've gotten a lot better. Completely agree. (laughs) Like I really struggle with uh, doing all of the things as well. Okay, and last one. Uh, Cassie says, I've learned that being present for myself and my goals is just as important as being there for others. Putting myself first has shown my daughters they can achieve their goals as well. Parental guilt is something I would have from the time, from times, sorry. Parent guilt is something I have from time to time. And now with both my girls older, it's interesting to hear their takes on instilling hard work, practicing a skill and ongoing learning slash training. I love that. So thank you again to everybody who commented. We did have a ton of comments this week. So I'm glad to see that this question uh, resonated. Okay, so this week's question is, what have you binged this year? Maybe it's coffee maybe it's a particular series maybe it's a tv show uh yeah let me know what you have binged this year the book recommendation of the week this week is worst wedding date by pippa grant now i read this this was number one in the store i have taken to watching uh the top 100 charts for a little while just just for fun just for competition pennies really uh and worst wedding date what did get to number one it sort of hovered between one and I don't know, the top 10 for a little while. So I thought I'd give it a read and it was hilarious. It was so fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was light. It was kind of just this hilarious wedding day romance that had a, t- like I I cackled on the tube reading it. So yeah, I, I loved it. Highly recommend that. So in personal news and updates, <laughs> this last week's been a bit chaotic. I randomly took a last minute trip to Israel to see my grandma. Uh, She's fine, before anybody panics. Uh, She's fine. I just hadn't seen her in basically half my life and an opportunity came up uh, to fly with crew. And uh, so off I went and it was a wild (laughs) 36 hours, let me tell you. Um, But suffice to say, I've been knocked off track a little bit just in terms of uh, what, you know, because I hadn't planned this. It was like the ticket was booked Saturday night and I flew Sunday night. So, and and I don't do spontaneous, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's been a couple of days i i also only had like th- three hours sleep or something mad um so i'm i've taken a few days to sort of recover i have been working the last few days but mostly just catching up on admin today's the last day i'm going to do that uh, and then tomorrow i'm going to finish off ra- drafting the last five new scenes for book two and then i'm going to send the book to the editor uh tomorrow uh, maybe saturday um no not saturday sunday because i'm doing an event on saturday uh so yeah that is so finally (laughs) i have finished that book i think i'm going to uh take a week i've still got some back-end tasks that i'm trying to get through i need to finish outlining the next book as well um i've had another idea for a non-fiction book that i really want to do this one is on mindset i think um but a a kind of particular angle i don't know what i anyway i'm not going to talk about it too much but i am very excited for the idea so well we shall see um 
so in the next week or so, I would say that I am going to be outlining. I'm also outlining the course that I'm going to be doing uh, after I finish drafting the next book. Um, so hopefully that will be June. And um, yeah, just finishing off like my marketing plan and uh, just kind of, I don't know, I don't even know. Like I need to adjust, I need to spend today looking, I've, I've put it on my to-do list to look at my production schedule because everything's shifted now. Uh, there are a few things like I think I was <laughs> overly optimistic about what I could do in and around going to Seville and the London Book Fair. Like, why do I do this to myself? Why do I assume that I, you know, if we if we set a good, better and best sort of deadlines for things, I always think that I'm going to make the best one. <laughs> I literally never do. I think... <laughs> Ah, drives me insane. I always need longer than I think I do. And yet I never learn. I, I don't know if you can hear Duchess in the background, but she's uh, joining in. Clearly she wants to uh, participate on the show. So I am going to be at the South West, no, South Coast Sapphic Hangout this Saturday, which is going to be a bunch of um, indie authors uh, who all publish sapphic fiction. There'll be readings and, and other things, karaoke I think there's going to be. I do not do karaoke. <laughs> ever um and that yeah so it's going to be fun and you can buy books and it will be lovely uh, obviously by the time this airs that will already be over uh and one thing i can say is i'm absolutely shitting myself i would rather stand on stage every single time uh than i would uh, uh go and do a in-person thing like this but hey i'm not one to let fear stop me so off i go to do that and I think that's probably it. Nice and short update for me because I basically spent half the week out of the country again. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. The rebel of the week this week is Carla. Carla says, my mum was a hoot, especially as she got older. My folks moved to Florida for 25 years before moving back home. And by home, I mean my sister put an addition on her house for them. But then my mum went from sassy to feisty to salty. My mum was active right up until the eve of her 89th birthday when she had a stroke, broke her hip from the fall. A second stroke six months after that kept her restricted to a wheelchair and we had to move her to a nursing home for 24-hour care. Of course, that didn't stop mum. First came the doctor telling her she needed to start wearing compression socks. She declared that she was not some feeble old lady and refused until they made her wear them. I ordered her, ordered her a pair of hot pink ones with giant hearts on the side of them. She looked and declared, now they're going to want to know who the sexy old broad is. <laughs> hot breath and Hulian? Hulihan is on a roll. When they got lost in the laundry, she rolled her chair right up to some poor woman and pointed at them, using that mum voice that struck the fear in us as kids and declared, those are mine. Give them back now. She got them back and they never went missing again. I did buy her lots of that style of sock uh, in a variety of colours after that and everyone knew to make sure they made it back to her room. Then came the driving under the influence DUI call. My mum was a whiskey drinker and her drink of choice with e with, was either a sour, whiskey sour or a Manhattan. For Mother's Day, I brought her an insulated tumbler that was opaque, five nips of whiskey and a bunch of small bottles of lemonade. I told her to have the aides put the lemonade in the fridge and, wh and when she wanted a cocktail, just ask them to fill her tumbler with a lemonade and dump the whiskey in when they left. Now, I am a teacher and I was working at a school that was absolutely shit on so many levels and slowly going mad. During the high stakes testing period, the principal would sit in the hallway to make sure there was no cheating going on. Yes, it was total shit. It is what it was. I had stopped to talk to him about something when my phone rang and I said, oh, it's my mother, I need to take this. He indicated to go ahead. She was pretty much deaf at that point, so she didn't know when she was yelling when she said, I just got busted for a DUI. <laughs> my principal looked at me. It's not every day your 91-year-old mother who can't drive calls to tell you she's been busted for a DUI loudly. I took a breath and said, what happened? Nurse Ratchet found my booze. You need to bring me more nips. Trying to stifle a laugh. <laughs> I tell her my brother should be stopping by soon as, as I was at school. She tells me to tell him to make sure Nurse Ratchet didn't drink it. And I tell her calling him immediately. I hung up, tried to explain this to my principal, who is also trying not to laugh, and he tells me to call my brother. I texted my brother, who brought his flask in with him when he would go visit her after that. 
Uh, who, sorry, who, yeah, who brought his heart? Uh, almost every photo of my mum on family occasions after her stroke are her, are her giving the photographer the finger. I'm enclosing a photo for you just to get a sense of her. My brothers took her shopping and saw a hat that said on fleek and said, what the hell does that mean? My brother tried to explain it and she called it a bunch of happy horseshit. <laughs> pose for this photo with one of them there isn't a day that goes by that i don't miss her but damn did she set an example a great example for the six of us kids that is incredible and this photo um i'm gonna ask to see whether or not i'm allowed to include it i i I hope i can because it is so funny but i won't if i'm not allowed uh but the it is the most epic mum photo i have ever seen uh uh just to describe it there is the hat saying on fleek and uh, her mum's in a wheelchair giving the camera a birdie is just exceptional (laughs) what an incredible woman and what an incredible rebellion life that she led if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story it can be any kind of rebellion something big something small or something in between you can email your rebel story to becca over on rebel author podcast at gmail.com Thank you and a huge welcome to Noreen Stone. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like our monthly Poison and Prose sessions, our quarterly movie nights, our quarterly Rebel Masterclass sessions, which are two-hour classes on a a topic that we pick together, and uh, also the Slack community, which is fantastic and a group of highly supportive authors who are always there to help each other out then you can do that by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black and you can do it from as little as two dollars a month one last comment from me before we start the episode in a bout of potentially the worst timing ever my internet went down 20 minutes before I spoke to TJ. So I had to hot foot it to my neighbours, who was one of the only people who didn't lose their internet. Um, And so I podcasted from um, her kitchen, which means the audio is not going to be like this audio where I have a whole crap ton of uh, books to kind of muffle the echoiness. So I apologise in advance, but the interview is totally worth it. So please do uh, stick with me and uh, hopefully my internet doesn't shit the bed in future. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am beyond excited today because we have the one and only TJ Klune. TJ is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling Lambda Literary award-winning author of The House in the Cerulean Sea, Under the Whispering Door, The Extraordinaries and more. Being queer himself, Klune believes it's important now more than ever to have accurate, positive queer representation in stories. He lives in the US and you can follow him on socials at TJ Klune. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. No, thank you so much for coming on. And for listeners, there was a bit of a before we started this episode. <laughs> a bit of a drama. Uh, the internet's gone down in this area, so... This, this, I'm hoping this episode's going to work absolutely fine, but just in case, I'm forewarning. Yeah. Um, so would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Oh, boy. Um, well, I am TJ Klune. I am from the States, as was mentioned, and I happen to be the author of too many books. And I have written... In the Lives of Puppets, when that comes out, that'll be my 30-something book. And oh, my goodness. I, am just, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm very tired when I think about that. <laughs> and so I try not to think about it too often. But look, I always wanted to be a writer. I always loved to read ever since I was a kid. And unfortunately, being that was not something in my household that was loved and appreciated. So I had to hide the things that I found joy in, because if I did not, there was a chance that they could be taken away from me. So I um, kept that a secret, all of it. The fact that I I read as much as I did, the fact that I had this notebook that I carried around with me wherever I went, filling it with stories. And it was not until I got to the seventh grade that I met uh, two teachers, Mrs. Benson, and Mrs. Pfeiffer, who changed my life forever. They were the first people to encourage me to be a writer. They were the first people to tell me that I was talented. They were the first people who gave me faith in myself. And I am proof positive over the power that that some teachers have over the lives of their students, because without them, 
I would not be here today. And I remember in my very last class with them, they told me, and this is, they're telling this to an 11, 12 year old boy. They told me that one day they would see my name on a book in a bookstore and it, it's happened. And it's because of their guidance and their trust and faith in something that, or in a, in a student or in a kid who had never gotten that level of trust and faith before. So I wrote my first book in 2010. It came out in 2011 uh, with a small indie publisher. That book called, was called Bear Otter and the Kid. And for some reason, that book blew up more than I ever thought possible. And so much so that I continued writing and was able to quit my job of 10 years in 2016 to do this full time. And I have been doing it ever since. And it's been a wild and crazy journey. And I'm one of the, the few people in this world who gets to say every single day, I do what I love. And that's not something I take for granted. No, no, absolutely. I do. Um, Like I've been full-time for four years and I do an annual mm -hmm. lessons learned and every single year I end with I will never ever stop being grateful to be here I, I really I it's like a moment and a marker in time for me to feel extreme gratitude for everything that I have and how I got here and um I always keep this photo of me uh from my like darkest sort of day in corporate and it is just full mm -hmm. of pain and but like I only look at it once a year because it is so painful for me but also because I'm so grateful the other thing that I wanted to say is I absolutely love that story about the teacher I also have a teacher um funny enough who I searched out recently because um I wanted to say thank you for encouraging me um and he still remembered me and I couldn't believe Aww. that he rem yeah I, I couldn't believe it because I was like you're not gonna remember me but I just wanted to say I'm super grateful for all the support <laughs> yeah but, I um, I reached out to Mrs. Betts and Mrs. F they were both older when I had them at teachers but I reached out to them in um when my first book came out and they were both still alive so I was able to send them copies of the book and they have both since passed since then but it 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 was this weird full circle moment that I was able to say look look what you did look what you, these two teachers did you you made me into who I am and if if no other student ever tells you that at least you got to hear it from me Oh, I love that. I bet that literally like that. Te that's why teachers teach is for those yeah, moments. Absolutely. So that's, that's what they so do. Magical. And and of course, there was a bunch of tears all around, but that's just what it is. <laughs> oh, I love it. I tell you who's responsible for tears and that's you. Like I have a bone to pick with you. I, I, yeah. I, have, this, <laughs> I have this reputation of being dead on the inside, you see. And mm -hmm. um, I think pretty much every single book of yours that I've read has made me sob hysterically. So like, I'm not, I'm not very happy yeah, about this. I, I, I have been routinely called an emotional vampire for for the fact that I feed off my readers and their <laughs> their tears. <laughs> really? Oh, seriously. The, the first one, Cerulean Sea, though, I was crying. I've never actually cried like that hysterically with joy so much. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was crazy. But anyway, I wanted to start by asking you about character creation. Each of your characters is so different and unique, like even from Cerulean Sea. And I have to say, I think Lucy might be my all-time favorite character from anything. <laughs> that um, but all the way to like Nurse Ratchet and Rambo, they're all so full, like, and so real. So I just wanted to ask, like, what tools or techniques do you use to draw these characters together and make them feel so real? That's a huge, huge thing for me, because even in the face of the fantastical, I want my characters to feel like they could be real, like you could close the book and see them standing right next to you, because that, that's how you, that's how you you know, bond with a character. That's how you relate to characters. Even if there's a character that might be, say, the Antichrist. And most people, I'm assuming, cannot relate to the Antichrist. But at the same time, we can relate to the fact that he's a six-year-old boy in the in the house in the Australian Sea. He's a human six-year-old boy with six-year-old boy thoughts and feelings. And what I love about kids is that they do not yet have the filter of cynicism that comes with age. They say whatever is in their heads. And even if it's crazy, even if it's scary, even if it's hysterical or stupid, they still say it because they're kids and they don't know any better. And I love that. I love that we can, that we should be allowing these little monsters to, to 
be who they want to be, to grow up and learn and make mistakes and, and not be punished for it. They need to be able to learn in a safe and happy environment, which is what I do, what I, what I specifically focused on with the kids, but character itself, it's so important for me that the characters be first and foremost in everything that I do. I am a character driven author. Even when my books are more plot heavy, I still focus on character first and in the lives of puppets, um, the book that's coming up soon, there are essentially multiple main characters in this book because you have Victor, who is the narrator, who is the only human. And then you have his family. You have Nurse Ratched, who is a nursing machine. You have Rambo, who is a socially anxious vacuum cleaner. You have Giovanni, the father figure, who's also a robot. And then you also have the hysterically angry puppet, who is also a machine known as Hap. And all of these characters, for the most part, you know, excluding, say, Geo and Hap, but Nurse Ratched, Rambo, and Victor all are on page every single page. They are all in this book. So if you were to remove one of them, you would not have this story anymore. So when I was writing In the Lives of Puppets and I'm thinking about characters, I'm thinking about how would these beings interact? How would these beings talk to each other? And, you know, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize inanimate objects. We want to see human qualities in them because that's how our brains work. It's how we make connections. So I wanted to take it one step further and say, well, I'm going to make you cry over a vacuum cleaner. Actually, it was Nurse Ratchet that made me cry. <laughs> Nurse Ratchet that made you cry. Yeah. But that, I love that Rambo. That would be one thing. Yeah. yeah I love Rambo. Rambo, because Rambo our... and Nurse Ratchet are some of the most favorite characters I've ever written. And it's it's very funny. I, I didn't attend it intend for them to be as vocal as they as they are i just started writing and then nurse ratchet and rambo would not shut up so i was like okay i guess we're making them main characters now too yeah i loved i loved rambo because we have a, a round like hoover mm-hmm. robot hoover and she's called cordelia and so i absolutely do yeah. everything that you're saying she has her own personality yeah. she's very stroppy and like why i don't i think it's I think it's because we all want to connect. Like we all find meaning yeah. and connection as humans. And so like, I think that's, yeah, I just, I loved it. Um, well, it's, so, it's so funny because you you see I, my, I have a Roomba vacuum. His name is Hank. And <laughs> he's the reason, he's the reason in the lives of puppets exists because I bought a Roomba vacuum. And then because I'm a human being, I put googly eyes on top of it. And then when you first get one of these vacuums, what they have to do is they have to map out the space. They have to learn where they're going to be working. And this stupid little machine got itself stuck in a corner and made the saddest beeping sound that I have ever heard. (laughs) And all of a sudden I had this entire story in my head about, about Rambo and about Nurse Ratchet and Vic and all of them. So the reason this book exists is because of capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. I, I um, do you have pets? Because my one of my cats yeah. is is really um, like set and determined to like destroy the Hoover. It's just like he he, he winds the Hoover up. He like turns it on, turns it off, uh, sits on top of it, and just it's the, there's a very like <laughs> there's a power. Of my cat, my <laughs> cat does not, my cat does not care about it in the sliders. And if it rolls toward my cat, she will just lay there and let it bump into her, and then it moves on. <laughs> My, so dog other, my dog, on the other hand, unfortunately, has to be put outside when we put on the Roomba vacuum because he wants to, uh, he thinks it's like a Frisbee and he wants oh. to pick it up and carry it in his mouth. I have caught him carrying the Roomba with its wheels spinning and dust falling out of it, which is mostly his hair that is falling out of it. So yeah, that he has to go outside when I turn on my vacuum because he wants to eat it. That's so funny. Okay, let's go a bit deeper with with your characters. Like how how do you decide which bits to kind of anthropomorphize? I can't even say that word, but like, you know, personify. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like with Rambo and like his itches, for example, that was so unique and kind of brings a depth to his character that I like wasn't, like I'd never even thought if this, if the robot Hoover was real, like that's what it would, yeah, like where does this, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Like talk to me about the details that you choose and what you decide to pair with which character in terms of like their personality and stuff. So to me, I have ADHD 
And it, it kind of t- makes me hyper fixate on things. And that's, that's one of my, <laughs> one of my symptoms that, that I have a tendency to hyper fixate and hyper focus on things that I'm interested in or things that I don't understand or how I want to understand how things work. I'm not a tinkerer. I'm not an inventor. I'm not a creator by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I should not be allowed near power tools of any kind whatsoever. Um, but with these little idiosyncrasies that each of these characters have, we all have little ticks. We all have little things, little quirks that set us apart that that are unique to us. Maybe other people have them, but you know, there's always a special little brand of uniqueness when it comes to our own individual ticks and quirks and and the things that we do. With with um, Rambo specifically, I'm thinking of the part where there's a conversation he has with Victor where they talk about what happiness feels like and what that is supposed to feel like for for Rambo, who is a machine, who is not human, who does not have human thoughts or human blood, human bones, anything. He's a machine. But there's this conversation that where Victor attempts to explain to Rambo what happiness is and not does he and he does not say to Rambo, you can't feel this. You can't do this because you are a machine. He tells Rambo, this is what it feels like to me. This is what the sensory experience feels like in a way to attempt to relate to Rambo. And I just find that absolutely endearing and fascinating because he has the same kind of relationship with Nurse Ratched, except Nurse Ratched is most likely to tell him to fuck off if he is trying to do, tell her to do anything, which is... So you have to know in Carlo Collodi's The Adventures of Pinocchio and what most people know, the Disney version of Pinocchio, there is the character of Jiminy Cricket. In Collodi's version, it is the talking cricket. In my version, Nurse Ratched and Rambo are Jiminy Cricket. They are what the role Jiminy Cricket was supposed to play and does play or and the talking cricket plays is technically the voice of Pinocchio's conscience. It's supposed to show what he's like as he becomes more human. With Victor, he's already human, but I still wanted to have the id and the ego, the the conscience on either side of him. And if you look at it from a distance, you might be able to say that, okay, he has the devil in Nurse Ratched and he has an angel in Rambo, but it's so much more complicated than that because they represent facets of humanity. You have the joy of discovery and bravery in Rambo. And then you have the harder emotions in Nurse Ratched, the anger, the, the, the control, the fear, the power. You have all of those in her. And then you have Victor, who is the only human out of them. So to combine these three, technically, I guess you could make a single person. But with them, I wanted I wanted to have this disparate or the disparate um personalities coming together and and meshing together because i love it when weirdos come together i'm a weirdo and my friends are weirdos and i love that when you can have weirdos coming together and being weird together well i think well it's found family and i think the whole queer community is found family well for me that's what it feels like anyway um well that's something i i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that because something that i've been trying to tell people more and more is that found family is a great trope But found family comes from a very real place. It comes from a very real place for queer people because queer people, the reason that we have found families and the reason that we seek out others is because we don't get the love and respect that we should be getting from our parents or or guardians or parental figures, whoever they are. So when you hear the word found family and you hear that in a book, you hear that in a description used to write a book, which my the people who write descriptions for my book use that as much as possible all the time, but it's 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 coming from a place of realness. It's coming from a place of of anger, of sadness, but it's also coming from a place of hope and joy because we are going out into the world and making families on our own. It goes to show that that old adage is correct that that family isn't all about blood. It cannot always be about blood, and the fact if it is just about blood that's a problem so uh, and it because funny enough i'm uh deconstructing a load of books at the moment on found family what what do you think makes good fat found family as a trope in a novel that that there is mutual love and respect and admiration 
for for the characters but that they are not above giving each other shit because that's how it should be you should you should be called out for your stupidity you should get to be made fun of in a way that's not malicious or mean i think that found family to me shows people who come together in a sense of community and family but also who take the piss out on each other because that's the point that's what you have to do you have to you can't take everything so serious all the time you have to find like-minded people who are willing to lift you up uh, when you need it, but who also you can do the same for them because it cannot be a one-way street. It has to be, it has to be give and take. So I just want to roll back to talking about Rambo and Nurse Ratchet because um it felt like they were almost yin and yang in in and of themselves. So like Rambo, you mentioned that he he represents bravery. And yet a lot of the time he's really afraid. And yet towards the mm-hmm. end, I'm not going to make any spoilers, but he does a very brave act in the climax. And, and it's mm-hmm. sort of the other way around in Nurse Ratchet. So did you do that on purpose to kind of show all the different like facets? Like, it, you know, how did you... Yeah, just talk to me about that and and the depth in which you created that. Absolutely. So Rambo and Nurse Ratched and Hap and Geo all have arcs of their own and separate from and involving Victor. Victor is, as I said, the main character. So he has his, you know, the main arc of the story where to me, characters can't be the same as they were at the very beginning. There has to be some fundamental change in them and to who they are, especially when you're going on a journey like these characters go on. It's a very grave and serious journey. So, of course, there's going to be changes into the character. But what I love about Rambo specifically is that, yes, he is frightened. He is uh, he's a warrior. But at the same time, when called upon to do so, he can be extraordinarily brave. He can he knows that when the when when everything is out in the open, when there might be not not another chance to do what they're doing. He's going to be the bravest little vacuum that's ever existed. And for Nurse Ratched, yes, you have her hardened exterior. You see glimpse in, in, in these little cracks that she allows to appear on herself. But as the book goes on, you see her becoming more and more open and invested into showing the people that are around her that she cares about them even if she also threatens to kill them in the very next breath. But that's just who she is. You know, she is, she is a, she is a very powerful woman. I'll put it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Though I may have seen some of myself in her. (laughs) (laughs) That may have been why she made me cry. (laughs) It's terrifying. (laughs) No, but also we all know that she's not really uh, cold and heartless. And you know, well, anyway, I I I will feel that way forever. (laughs) What I what I love what I love about her is that by the very end, you see exactly what she is and what what her motivations are and who she cares about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think she's my fave. Uh, okay, so I have read all three of these books that are, they're all standalones, but they kind of feel connected in a way. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that I heard you talk about this on a different podcast, that they were kind of thematically linked. I don't know if I'm just making this up now, but I'm sure I heard you say they were sort of thematically <laughs> linked. Um, and I always feel like you have such rich themes and kind of philosophy uh, in your in your books. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about how you developed that. How did you decide the angle to come at in each of these books? And how did you decide like what elements would represent those themes? Yeah. So the house and the, the, these three books, the house and the Cerulean Sea, Under the Whispering Door and In the Lives of Puppets are not set in the same world, same character, same universe, anything like that, even though there are hints that there could be, you know, some kind of connections that I sprinkle throughout the books. But in this case, I call them my unofficial kindness trilogy. You had House in the Cerulean Sea, which was about being kind to others. You had Under the Whispering Door, which was about um, something I think is much harder, which is being kind to yourself. And then you have In the Lives of Puppets now, which asks some much bigger and, and harder to answer questions, what does it take to show kindness to somebody or something that actively does not deserve it? Who might have done something so, I hesitate to use the word evil, but that's essentially what it is. Somebody who's done something so terrible and evil that it boggles the mind. What does it look like when you are 
the person standing there being asked for forgiveness. And who does forgiveness fall to? Does it fall to the person, only to the person affected? Does it fall to the community affected? Can somebody from the community accept an apology and, and ask for forgiveness? Or does it just affect peripheral people? It's it's strange to think about what, what standing forgiveness can have. But that's what I wanted to explore with these books. Because in, in the House in the Cerulean Sea, I asked, what does it take to be a good human and under the whispering door is what does it take to be a better human here the biggest and hardest question is what does it mean to be human and that is what i wanted to set out to answer i don't know if i answered that completely at least at least not in a way that you know in 100 years people are gonna be like oh tj clune he's totally cool he totally answered this question but in i i answered it in a way that made sense for me because humanity is gross. Humanity is destructive, callous, cruel, evil. We do things simply because we want to harm others. But at the same time, there are so many of us that are just filled with light. And that that duality boggles my mind that we can have people who give everything in service of others. And then on the flip side of that, you have people who are so selfish that they want to take away rights from others. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I won't get on my soapbox right now, but yeah. Um. Okay, so I felt the yin and yang kind of in multiple places in in the lives of puppets. Um, And one was kind of with um, Victor and his father. Um, And so I wondered if you could talk about how you bring stories full circle. Like, how do you give that really satisfying um, completeness at the end of a story? The the last chapter in in the lives of puppets is probably the best writing I have ever done. I the last chapter, as as people will read, is not the last chapter it was originally. Originally, in the last chapter, it was much more upbeat. It was much more hopeful. It was a much more. There were other characters who came in, and all of this other stuff was happening. But it just felt it felt like I had ended the book on too much of a high note because of all the all the things that had happened from the beginning of this book to the point I was at at the end, it felt like I wasn't giving enough weight to everything that every character had done, but particularly Victor and his father. Because you're right, they are yin and yang. You have Victor and his father starting in one place at the beginning of the book. You learn the truth throughout the story of what is actually going on. And then by the very end, you have Victor having made a similar decision that his father had made previously. And that to me was the, the, was the necessity that I had to rewrite that last chapter because it did not fit with that full circle moment. So in rewriting the last chapter, I, I basically said, okay, what do I want to say here? What do I want to do with these characters at this moment in time, knowing that even if I wanted to, to tie this up in a night and nice and pretty bow would feel disingenuous. It would feel almost like a slap in the face to the entire journey that these characters have been on. So I rewrote the ending of this book to give it that bigger, more complete full circle moment. And I think the novel is so much more powerful with the ending it has now with versus the ending it did. And I know people will not get to read the ending that it used to have, but this ending to me is the right, the best and the only ending for this book. And I am so, you know, I, I try not to talk about my own writing, like I'm getting high off my own supply. But what I do want to say here is that I'm very proud of the writing in this not in the book itself. Yes. But in the very last chapter man i i pushed myself to to the the extremes or the boundaries of my creativity to to nail that ending and i think i did i think i i i gave the truest ending that could possibly be given for this story yeah it was kind of almost breathless like at, at the end which isn't necessarily how i felt at the end of the other two like at the end of the other mm-hmm. two it kind of felt warm and 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 fuzzy and or, or hysterically crying with joy um you know right 
And this, at this the is, end of this, this one, is quieter. Yeah, this is had, more contemplative. Yes, I had to take a minute. I needed a minute at the end of the book, mm-hmm. and like, so you definitely, you definitely landed that. Yay! Um, yeah. <laughs> Bravo! Now the uh, alternative <laughs> ending, though, you know, you know, you know, you should totally share that with uh, mailing list uh, readers or, or whatever. That's what I would do. Um, okay, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about was dialogue. I think you've written some of my all-time favorite dialogue. Um, Lucy in Cerulean Sea was exceptional. Like honestly, I yeah. like have like dirty piggy snort laughed out loud at some of his um words. And and Nurse Ratchet also made me cackle out loud um in 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 the lives of puppets. So what advice do you have for um, perhaps aspiring writers who would like to create brilliant, wholly differentiated, kind of very in-character dialogue? So the best thing to do for, for me, dialogue has always been, in addition to character work, dialogue is the most important. Because again, even if I'm writing a book about the fantastical, about weird things going on, in this case, the end of the world where robots now rule and there's people living in a forest in the tree houses, I still want them to feel natural. I still want it to feel like you could actually hear somebody saying this, like you, 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 you could hear this voice in your head. And this this is very labor intensive, but it's something that I do with every story that I write. When I finish writing a story, I will go back and I will read the entire book out loud. I will start from the very beginning, page one, and I will read the entire book out loud to myself. And the reason I do that is because I, when I hit dialogue, I want to make sure it feels like a natural person speaking. I don't want it to feel like, because you know, when you read books and normal, regular, everyday people are speaking and you kind of cock your head and be like, does anybody really talk like this? Is this, is this, is this somebody who just found a thesaurus and is using it for the first time? What is going on here? I don't want that. I want to do that. I want to use, I want to use word and verbiage that people know and understand. And if I have to teach them new things and new words, new phrases, whatever, I want to make sure that it's couched in, in an explanation where they don't have to stop and be like, oh, I don't know what this means. Now I have to go research. I hate it when that happens in a book. I hate it when I'm reading a book and I there's a concept introduced that's never explained. And I'm like, I'm just supposed to do what with this now? But the the dialogue especially when it's it's in in part it's not i can't tell you as an because as an author i'm very weird because i tend to hear these characters talking to me i hear them speak i know what they sound like in my head that's how i know a story is coming on me when a character starts speaking to me for example house in the cerulean sea even though he is not the main character the very first voice i heard out of that book was lucy i knew lucy was going to be a major part and as he started talking more and more, I realized that he was not going to be the main character, but he was going to be a major character. The same thing happened with uh, the Under the Whispering Door. Wallace was a jerk, and he kept talking to me right off the bat. And I knew he was a jerk, and I knew I was going to have to bring him down low. And in this case, it was it was hearing Rambo and Nurse Ratched and Victor. And I know what they sound like. I know what their interplay sounds like. I know what Victor sounds like when he's hanging off a scrap heap and they're down below him picking up. I know the level of his voice, the tenor of his voice, how, how he would pause between certain words. I know all of that because I can hear it in my head. I can hear it when I talk. Now, does that always translate to me being able to write that down? No, absolutely. There was times when Rambo was sounding like he was like he was like doo-wopping or like, you know, like he was a scat man kind of thing going on just blip, 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 in my head. And so I had to, you know, take a step back, take a breath and really sit down and think, OK, Rambo, interested, nervous, scared, worries, brave, nurse, ratchet, sociopath. <laughs> That's what I had to do with them to, to figure out their voices, voices and dialogue. I'm very fortunate that it's not hard for me because that's something that I have spent many, many years honing to do. And look, my humor is not going to be for everybody. Humor is um, a very subjective thing. What works for one won't work for another. I have, I have heard from people that my humor grates them. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. It's not for everyone. Then you find somebody who's like, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And you're like, oh, cool people. Finally, <laughs> it's, it's totally fine. I get it though. 
I I spend more time. This is probably not going to be the best news I could give, but I probably spend more time working on dialogue and character than I ever do on plot. No, but I no, I love that. What so you said you spent years honing it. So like, what have you done in terms of like your own craft to get to this point? When you say you've like honed reading, it? I read a lot. I read so much. I read every day, and and that is something that I will never stop doing because I will never stop learn. I will never stop learning. I will never be the world's greatest writer, but if I can get a little bit better every single day, then you know what? That's good. That's good enough. And I read, as I said, a lot. I don't just read fiction. I read nonfiction. I read horror, romance, westerns, you know, comedies. I read fantasy, science fiction. I read anything, everything. It's It takes a lot for me to put down a book because I don't think it's good. I, I can push through a lot of stuff because I, I always want to give people, uh, you know, an attempt to read what they've written, to read their craft. It's I am very much a proponent of do not finish or did not finish a book though. If, if, if it, you know, a book to me is not great when even I am the one that's going, okay, enough of this. I don't want to do this anymore, but I honestly, I, I read, I write. And here's one thing that I don't talk about a lot. I write stories for myself that will never be published, that will never see the light of day. Some of them are writing exercises just to see if I can do a certain kind of thing. Um, some are 10,000 word uh, uh, just attempts to do something a little bit different. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. But just because you get to read a book for me you know, once a year or, or every year and a half, that doesn't mean that you get to read everything that I've written. I have I have novels that I've written that will never see the light of day. I have stories that I've written that will never see the light of day because they're not for everybody else. They're just for me. And that's how I practice. That's how I become better is I practice and I practice and I practice. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that I'm obsessed with doing is deconstructing. So I will read um, everything, everything that I read. I And it's blasphemous for some people but I pen I write in every book yeah. <laughs> and oh, I, make I, I make notes too yeah, yeah I make notes I put sticky tabs in and then I kind of lift sentences out and try and find the tools or like the devices that an author's put in like how did they make that happen what you know and that's and then I'm like oh, okay how can I use that in my story or how can I use that juxtaposition or that you know how can I use a um, simile with a similar rhythm or you know whatever um, and so yeah I, I love that Okay. Um... One, one thing I will say too, one thing I want to add real quick is if you're an aspiring writer and if you want to attempt to write and write to get feedback, you know where a lot of people get their start and it's an awesome place to start? Fan fiction. Write fan fiction. Go on to Archive of Our Own, one of the most popular fan fiction websites in the world, and you can post any kind of story you want, whether it be based on an original IP, a TV show, video game book, whatever. Or you can write original works and post them on this website. And if you put in your notes that you would like critical feedback, people can offer you critical feedback. And also fan fiction, is it gets such crap because it's fan fiction. But there are some amazing writers working in fan fiction these days who write 200,000 word epics for free and then post them online. I've read some really amazing writing in fan fiction amazing writing and i've read some really shitty books that are published by big publishers so don't 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 be what the literati does and and poo poo fan fiction it's a great place for writers to discover their voice and see what works for them uh, yeah, totally. And, you know, what really is originality? Because, you know, every romance has the same beginning and the same ending and yep. they all follow and a you know similar story structure. Through, yeah, 75% through, there's probably going to be the big misunderstanding yep. that ends in a breakup and then, <laughs> oh no, in the last 10%, they work it out. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the vast majority of writers, we all are big like cookie monsters for books and for um, story structure and movies and TVs. We all gobble it up and then we spit out something that is the product of our lives and our experiences and everything that we've input. So, you know, anyway, I won't I won't go off ranting, but yeah, totally well, that, agree with what you're that's saying. What, that's, what in the lives of, that's what In the Lives of Puppets is. It is a love letter to the science fiction and fantasy genres because I pulled from 
The Wizard of Oz. I pulled from WALL-E. I pulled from iRobot. I pulled from AI by Kubrick and Spielberg. I pulled from the most traumatizing children's movie ever made that if you're of a certain age, you will know the movie. And that is called The Brave Little Toaster. And if you know The Brave Little Toaster, it is about inanimate objects, household objects, case in point, a toaster who comes to life. And there is a character in this called Lampy. And in this movie, Lampy, Lampy's light bulb is what keeps him alive. And then the light bulb breaks and he dies. And that is a movie. He gets brought back to life by the end. But imagine being a child and you you have this lamp that you just adore in this movie. And then the lamp dies and it shows it dying. And then that's the movie. So I pulled from Brave Little Toaster, too, for this book. <laughs> oh, my God. What? What? Awful humans did that. Why would you do well, that? Well, wait, wait until you wait until you hear about the sequel called "The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars." Oh. <laughs> America. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness me! Okay, uh, so two of your books, uh, Cerulean and Whispering, both kind of start with grumpy, somewhat unlikable uh, kind of characters, and yet we immediately feel connected to the protagonists anyway. So could you talk about, like, how do you do this? How do you create a grumpy character <laughs> that we still love? In fact, Nurse Ratchet, in a way, is that, it kind of mm-hmm. ep- epitomizes that grumpy or unlikable character. Um, and yet she was my fave. <laughs> yeah, how, right? how, so how do you do I, it? I think what... <laughs> I think Wallace Price from Under the Whispering Door is the the best example of this because as the novel opens, he's a jerk. From the very first time he speaks, he's a jerk. He's firing one of his long-term employees and he is not listening to her. He doesn't give a crap about anybody but himself. And then at the very end of that first chapter, he dies. And I think that is amazing. I think that is wonderful because I wanted to be able to, when you're writing a character like Wallace and to a lesser extent Linus, you need to bring them low. You need to remove all of the things that empower them, all of the things that they think make them better than everybody else. Linus didn't necessarily think that, but Wallace sure as hell thought that. And so when you remove all of that, what is left? A quivering mess of a human being who doesn't know where to go, doesn't know what to do. And, you know, we see that a lot these days, especially online, when people are on airplanes or people are in stores and they're being mean and cruel and they're homophobic, racist, whatever. And then all of a sudden a camera comes up and they're being recorded and they start crying and like, I didn't want to do this. This is not what I wanted. And that's the kind of That's the kind of people that I just like, you deserve this a little bit. You know that? You deserve this. So when I was writing Wallace and all these things kept happening to him, I was like, you deserve this. (laughs) This is, this is what you, you made this. But with characters like that, you have to walk a tightrope because if you make them too unlikable for too long, the reader isn't going to connect with a person that they're supposed to connect with. But if you make them too good too soon, that doesn't, it feels unearned. The arc is not there. And they, so they get happiness. But what about the fact that they were an asshole for their entire lives? So I, I am very, very cognizant of that fact that you have to, with unlikable characters, you have to get to a point and it has to be early, early on where the reader will begrudgingly think, okay, maybe he's not so bad, or maybe this character isn't that big of a jerk. And when that happens, you start your brain chemistry starts to change a little bit because you're starting to pick out little things where you're thinking, oh, I'm like this, Wallace does this, I do that. Wallace does this, I do that. And by the very end, you're crying over Wallace, who at the very beginning, you were, I hate this guy. And that's intentional. It's supposed to be that way because that's humanity. You know, I love, humanity sucks. But what I love about humanity is that the way people who used to suck horribly, and I'm talking about people who who were racist or or in you know an extreme example, people who were Nazis or in the KKK. I've I was reading this article a few days ago about this tattoo artist who for free covers up, you know, racist or whatever tattoos for people who are moving beyond that, for people who are trying to become better. And so if you think about it, if you saw somebody with a swastika tattoo right in the middle of their forehead, you would make assumptions about who that person is and very correctly so. But what if that person 
can change? What if they can learn and be a different person? Does, does that negate who they were before? No, absolutely not. But should they should they be given the chance to try to be better people? I think so. Should we keep our eye on them while they're being better people or trying to be better people? Absolutely. But I I love the fact that people can change. People can become better, but it has to be something that they choose to do. And that's the hard thing is that a lot of people don't choose to be better. They choose to be angry and, and ridiculous because that gets them the clicks or that gets them the following, the feedback, whatever. And I just, I don't know why we think that that's the way the world should be when we can all attempt to become better people. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think you're very amazingly forgiving humans. We are, we can be. And I, to a fault, there, there are times when I think that we can be too forgiving. Um, and other times when, my God, we're not forgiving enough. I mean, I, I don't need to necessarily go into extreme politics here, but in the United States right now, we're having a very huge anti-queer, anti-trans movement crossing this country where legislation, I mean, in the state of Florida, they just passed yesterday where for the for the school grades, kindergarten through 12th grade, which is basically our entire uh, primary school uh, system, in Florida, they can no longer talk about gay people. You can't, teachers cannot mention anything having to do with gender or sexuality, pronouns, anything like that to any student whatsoever. Or they will be, they could be fired, they could be fined, they could go to jail. That's how it is in Florida right now. Oh my God. I mean, I, yeah. I knew it was bad, but. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there, there are, um, uh, places in our states in this country right now that are passing anti-trans laws that are passing anti-drag laws but are conveniently ignoring the fact that anytime a a child offender molester rapist whatever comes out it's always a republican <laughs> it's always the right wing and i just don't understand how we have gotten to this point where marginalized people are in the crosshairs we always have been, but this just feels worse. It feels terrible. Yeah, I, I, th I think there are some very scary things um, happening, and I don't, I don't know how we fix it, but I, I hope that words and stories mm -hmm. help to slowly that, change. That's what we can continue to do. We can continue to tell our stories, even if they get challenged, yeah. even if they they're requested to get banned. Even if they do this, I will continue to tell the stories that I want to tell because I never got to have these books when I was a kid. And I know there are people who are that age now who don't have the stories that they wanted to, to read about themselves. So I'm going to continue writing for those people. Yeah, it's funny because I only uh, recently made the switch into writing sapphic fiction and I kind of had like a, a realization about 18 months ago. I was like, why, why, why am I not writing queer fiction? <laughs> like, why, why is that right. not a thing that I, and, and I realized because as we said earlier, we are a product of all the things that we have input. And as a teenager, I didn't have any books with me in them. And mm -hmm. so when I got to adulthood and I started writing, I started writing the stuff that I knew and that I had read and that I understood. And so, yeah, I, I, that's, and that now is why I write sapphic books because I want to give those to pe to, to me right. when I was little, little me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. One last question before I ask the, the major podcast question. Uh, so one of my patrons, <laughs> Eden uh, says, I have a question for TJ. I noticed that you draw on mythology and mythology, mythological characters for your um, settings and characters. Do you always start with the mythology first? and then build the story around it or do you build the story and then the mythology slots in i build the story around it but it doesn't come from a place of oh i want this mythological creature or i want to include this philosophical discussion on this i i include like if you'll notice in the house in this world you can see parnassus linus um marcius all of these names and a whole bunch of others are 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 nods to to Greek mythology. And the reason I include those in in that book and in Under the Whispering Door and in, in the Lives of Puppets is because I have a lot of philosophical discussions in these books. And I want to make sure that that I'm giving a nod towards the place where most people think philosophy started, which is with the ancient Greeks and how they would come together and basically debate 
what it means to be human, what it means to be uh, a thinking person. What does it mean with 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 the evil in the world? What does it mean that those who are righteous? And so when I'm talking about philosophy, when I'm talking about things like moral relativism or deontology or utilitarianism, it's because I am wanting to put what I know and what I've learned into effect in these stories when I'm talking about things like mortality and morality and what does it mean to be a good person? So when you see like the mythology, when you see the little notes and names of of places that are recognizably part of mythology, it's because I just want to give little nods to the Greek culture because I, I pull so much from philosophical discussions in these books and I want to make sure that I'm giving credit where credit's due. I love that. Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. In, as I talked about previously, in the United States, there is a concerted effort to ban and challenge books. And I want to make sure it's clear here when I say this. The, the books and, and that are being challenged and banned in this country are books by queer people and books by Black people about the queer experience and the Black experience. Last year, the American Library Association released uh, a list of the top 10 challenged and banned books in the United States. All of them were queer, every single one had to do with queer stories. Two of them were also about being black and queer. So there was the black experience in those. How I'm a rebel is I will never let this stop me. I will never shut up about this. I will always be speaking out about the right and importance of access to books. In this country, libraries are being defunded because they will not remove pride displays. I had a librarian in Idaho be given a list of books that this right-wing religious group wanted to remove from the library, a list which my books were on. When the librarian took this list and read this list and then returned to the people and said, we don't actually carry any of the books that you have listed on here. What did this group do? Did they say, thank you for your time and we'll be moving on? No, they didn't believe her. They called her a liar. They threatened her. She began receiving death threats at her home so much so that she quit. And now this library didn't doesn't have a library director anymore. She quit and moved out of this town because that is what people are doing right now. I am using my voice to make sure that those people know that we are not going quietly. We will not be going down without a fight. Anytime I give a talk, anytime I'm speaking to students, anytime I'm speaking to readers, anytime I'm giving keynote addresses or speaking at events, I always bring this up because if we do not talk about it, if we choose to remain silent over it, that means that we are going to lose. We will lose, absolutely 100% lose. And that is unacceptable to me. So anytime I see the injustice of people saying, no, you cannot have this book. This book is pornography. This book is indoctrinating children into becoming homosexuals. I am going to lose my shit, man. I will absolutely call people out. I will absolutely tell them they're being stupid to their faces because they are. They absolutely are. Even if you find a book to be reprehensible, even if you find a book to be evil and disgusting and gross, that does not mean you have the right to tell people that they cannot read it. And I'm not speaking about parents telling their, their minor young children of that. I'm talking about people who have taken it upon them or have taken it upon themselves to go into communities and tell the communities what they should and should not be able to read. And that is absolute BS. I'll finish this by saying in the 1970s here in America, there was a woman called Anita Bryant. Anita Bryant in the 50s, she was a beauty queen. In the 60s, she was a eh, singer. And in the 70s, she decided that she wanted to do something that no one else had done. She wanted to rid the world of homosexuals. How did she go about this? Well, she started off by saying, you have to hear this. Books are indoctrinating children into becoming homosexuals. Teachers are teaching children how to be homosexual. The school districts are turning children homosexual. So what did she launch? In Dade County, Florida, in the 1970s, she launched what's known as the Save Our Children campaign. Here we are 50 years later and the state of Florida is doing the Save the Children campaign. It is the exact same thing. Bigotry is a flat circle. It'll come and it'll go and it'll come back again. What's so funny about this 
in a very dark kind of way, is that even though Anita Bryant is still alive and probably clapping her gnarled hands with glee because of the fact that this is going on in Florida still, every almost every historian, every person with a modicum of sense looks back upon Anita Bryant in the 70s and thinks she was a douchebag. She was just an absolute douchebag. So what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years? What are people going to think about the government of this country trying to minimize or reduce trans and and queer people? We're going to, oh, I already think they're douchebags, but they're going to think they're douchebags in the next time. And guess what? In 50 years, maybe we'll be having this exact same argument again. Maybe in 50 years, I will be 90 years old, but you can sure as shit bet if I am still alive in 50 years and this argument comes again, I will be a front and center with my walker and my teeth falling out of my head. And I will say, fuck all of you. You will lose like you've (laughs) lost every single time. Yeah, absolutely. Because love is the way that we heal, like ultimately. Yep. But it, not to the point where we let people walk all over us because no. it's getting to a point where, you know, there was the whole thing after before Trump was elected, when Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. And I get why she wanted to say that. But sometimes it requires getting down in the dirt. And I have no problem in doing that. No, throwing a couple punches, maybe. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books and yeah. anything else that you'd like to add. I've nuked my Twitter account, so you can't find me there anymore because Twitter is scary and evil. So I am on the only social media site I am on left is Instagram. And uh, you can find me at tjclunebooks.com, which will show my upcoming stuff and all the tour dates because I'm coming to the UK in a month at the end of May for a week-long tour. Oh, that is exciting. Um, Okay. Well, safe travels. Um, And thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a big thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to TJ Clune. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Nick Thacker, and we're going to be talking all about advanced marketing strategies. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.